the Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. We've got three discussions on tap for you today. The first about the Democratic priorities in the budget taking shape in state government in Lansing. And we'll hear about one state senator's efforts to reduce sentences for some offenders after they serve 10 years in prison. And lastly, we'll hear about the possibility of gun-free zones here in the city of Detroit. That is all next on Detroit Today. But right now, the news from NPR. WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, your host, and thanks for joining. It can be really tough to see how policy at the local, the state, or the federal level affects our everyday lives. You can't necessarily point to an expanded education budget, for instance, and pick out just how it might boost the number of kids reading at greed level or which kids will benefit from that policy. You can't know necessarily how many electrical vehicles are on the road now because the Biden administration incentivized the creation of more charging stations. Unless you're a journalist or a legislator or a dedicated public advocate, somebody who's really studying these things all the time, it can be really tough to know how legislation has an impact on your life every day. But in the last year, we have seen an awful lot of legislation passed. Recently, state lawmakers passed LGBTQ protections after a really long debate in Lansing years and years over making sure that everybody is protected equally in our state. Uh, Legislators have repealed right-to-work laws, and they've bolstered gun control for the first time in my lifetime. It's hard to know exactly how many discrimination cases won't happen against uh, gay and queer individuals or how many school shootings might be avoided in the state because of this kind of legislation. But we know the answer is probably something. And, of course, that's why we pay such close attention to these topics here on the show. Today, we are going to be discussing an awful lot of different policy ideas, both at the state and local level. Later in the hour, we're going to talk with State Senator Stephanie Chang about a bill she's sponsoring to decarcerate the state. And then we're going to talk with Detroit City Council member Mary Waters, who is trying to institute some gun-free zones here in the city of Detroit. But before we get there, we want to talk about a little bit bigger Uh, policy issue here in the state. Michigan lawmakers are working to hammer out the new budget 
for state government. And to explore what their priorities look like, we've got Rick Pluta here. He is the senior state capital correspondent for the Michigan Public Radio mm-hmm. Network. Rick, welcome back to Detroit Today. Hi, Stephen. Yeah, great to have you here. So uh, let's talk first about all of this legislation that has been passed in, in recent months. We've talked about them individually uh, here on the show uh, as each was was sort of ushered through. But in totality, this is a really impressive uh, accomplishment for a new legislature uh, with new leadership and new leaders to have gotten so much done in such a, a short period of time. Well, they've been waiting a long time to do it. So <laughs> right? uh, it was pent there, up, right? <laughs> there was some there there was some pent up desire. Yeah. <laughs> um, let, let's talk about some of the things that they did and the effect that they will have on uh, on our lives. Uh, right to work, uh, LGBTQ protections, uh, gun control. These are not things that we have always uh, seen come out of Lansing in in our state? Well, I, I, I guess I would, um, let's just pick out um, two, LGBTQ rights and uh, gun control. And as you pointed out in, in you know your introduction to this segment, that it's sort of difficult to measure the impact of that against, you know, something that, you know, hasn't happened because of, uh, you know, because of these policies. Mm-hmm. But we do know that um, long-term trends will be tracked. Uh, one of the things, especially on the, on the gun control piece of it, is, uh, you know, lawmakers and, you know, basically Democrats are saying that, you know, we might see some incremental changes if they're noticeable at all. But, you know, this is just the first wave of um, policymaking, you know, things like, uh, you know, uh, locked storage, for example. Um, And so these things are going to be followed up with other things and with other things and, you know, maybe even with other things after that. The idea being to push incremental culture change. But the thing about, and I think this gets to what, what you were talking about, is incremental doesn't make for easy measurement. So mm-hmm. was this policy change responsible for you know the trends that we're seeing, or was it something else, or was it the uh, accumulation? Yeah. So before we get to the budget, I, I also mm-hmm. want to talk about the leadership in the legislature and the job that they have done so far. Joe Tate is uh, the Speaker of the House. He's a Democrat from here in uh, Detroit. And Winnie Brinks is the Senate Majority Leader. Um, I I, want to talk about the fact that they... You know, these are these are people who have not had because Democrats were out of power for such a long time in Lansing, uh, a lot of opportunity to learn how to the the, the, the chamber mm-hmm. runs and how to pull the levers in the right direction to get things done. Uh, and there was some fretting about that, I think, uh, early on that it might take a while to find a rhythm. They seem not to have have stumbled too much uh, over this and and both seem to be able to to set an agenda in their chambers and and get the majority to do what uh, what needs to be done. Well, it, it's one of the um, perverse benefits of um, small majorities, which is what Democrats have in the in the House and the Senate, is that if 
you know, those majorities are going to get things done, they have to hang together, that they have to work through differences. Otherwise, you're going to have a, uh, you know, you're going to have a splintered legislature where kind of everyone is a free agent. And, you know, that that makes it very, very difficult to get things done. But the things that they've done so far have been, you know, mostly the things that it's kind of easy for Democrats to uh, hang together on, you know, when it came to union rights and abortion rights, you know, things like that. And as you get further into the session, then you're getting into the things that are maybe even a little less partisan and more regional and, and, and local and uh, pulling together majorities for um, some of these things uh, may be more difficult, especially as we get into budget season. Yeah. Yeah. I'm talking with uh, Rick Pluta. He is the senior state capital correspondent for the Michigan Public Radio Network, someone who joins us from time to time to talk about what's going on in Lansing. Right now, we're talking about all the legislation that has been passed in the early days of Democratic control of both houses of the legislature uh, in the state capital. Uh, in a minute, we're going to talk about the, the way that the state budget is uh, coming together. That is a big item that's coming up soon that the legislature will start debating. We want to hear from you as well on the phones. Uh, what do you make of the things that have been passed in Lansing over the past few months? Do you think state lawmakers are doing a good job? Do you think Democrats are doing a good job? First time in nearly 40 years that uh, they have complete control of the legislature and the governor's office uh, in Lansing. Uh, also, uh, what do you want to see them prioritize in the state budget? There is an awful lot of money still in Lansing right now. Uh, how should we be spending that to make life better here in the state? 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can include you that way. Uh, Rick, all right, I want to get into uh, the budget process. Um, Senate Republicans have been voting against budget bills, uh, but the, the they don't have uh, the, the ability, I don't think, to, to really derail uh, the process. So how is all this uh, likely to play out this year? Uh, what are some of the priorities that Democrats are, are putting on the table? And talk about the money that's still there uh, that, that will need to be spent. Mm-hmm. Those federal bucks. Well, I, I guess I'll... I'll um First of all, you know, in the vernacular of the Capitol and the legislature, that there's kind of two sorts of legislation. One of them is called policy bills, um, you know, for example, repealing uh, the abortion language that mm-hmm. Michigan had on the books. And the other is, is budget bills, spending bills. But it almost goes without saying, which means I'm going to say it, um, <laughs> is budget bills are policy bills yes. that where, you know, that. If you look at uh, what's going on in, um, you know, Highland Park and what's going on with the Detroit water system, that, you know, there, there's a, a policy component to that in terms of how much should the state step in? How often should the state step in and how much support should the state throw behind a local community when it's faced with its own um spending crises, especially on something that's as significant as a uh, water system. I mean, we've seen the same thing, you know, play out in Flint. It just was a somewhat easier question to answer because the state was responsible Mm -hmm. 
for, um, you know, for the crisis. So, you know, both of those things, you know, play together. And Republicans do have a powerful, powerful tool at their disposal when it comes to the budget, which is, you know, that you're familiar with, is the motion called immediate effect. Mm -hmm. Because laws under the Michigan Constitution don't take, don't, don't become active, effective until three months after the end of the session, unless the legislature puts in an enactment date and backs that up with something called immediate effect so that the law is activated right away and that effective date matters. And that is something that Republicans, they can vote against budget bills. And if Democrats hang together, they're going to lose those votes. But because immediate effect is a super majority, that is a powerful tool yeah. because they can deny um, Democrats the ability to you know, put their budgets in by the October 1st deadline absent an early adjournment. Um, and so that forces Democrats to the table to negotiate on stuff, both, um, you know, maybe financial support for local projects, which is a you know, typical um, tool the, of the uh, majority, but also, you know, maybe on big policy questions as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, three one three five seven seven one zero one nine is the number here on the phones. Uh, Rick, what about the timing for the budget? In recent years, of course, the wrangling over the budget has kind of spilled not just into the midsummer, but sometimes uh, you know into early early fall when we've really got to get uh, a, a budget passed for the next uh, fiscal year. Of course, if you go back mm-hmm. to the Snyder administration, you know, he kind of prided himself, uh, at least early on, in getting the budget done before legislators left for uh, for the summer. Mm-hmm. What, what's it going to look like now that uh, Governor Whitmer has majorities uh, uh, in both houses? Will she get it done uh, earlier? Um, well, she says so, and legislative leaders have said so, at least in terms of, you know, some that really matter, which would be the school aid budget and revenue sharing for local governments. And the problem is that decades and decades and decades ago, um, the state's fiscal year and school districts and local governments' fiscal years were in alignment. But, and, and I don't, you know, recall the last year I wasn't there and they did it. But in order to resolve a budget crisis, the state moved the opening of its fiscal year to October 1st, while local governments and school districts were still um, on a calendar where those fiscal years start July 1st. And since school districts and local governments rely a lot on um, the state appropriations process, you can sort of see the problem that that created, that they're adopting budgets without some assurance as to how much money the state is going to be kicking in. And it is a substantial amount. You know, school districts get a a certain amount from the state for every student that they have. It's a huge, huge part of their budget. During the Snyder years, Rick Snyder said, well, we can't change that law Mm -hmm. because there aren't the votes for it, but we can make an assurance and stick to it that you are going to know how much money you're getting from the state by uh, July 1st. Um, Legislative leaders aren't promising that we will hit that deadline exactly, but um, they are saying that, that, you know, 
school districts and local governments should have a pretty good idea of what they're going to uh, get by then. Again, presuming that, you know, one, they can, you know, get these immediate effect votes and that these budgets aren't derailed by fights like, oh, um, including diversity, equity and inclusion language in uh, the school's budget, for example. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, Rick Pluta, senior capital correspondent for the Michigan Public Radio Network. Always great to catch up with you and to have you here to help our listeners understand what's going on in Lansing. Thanks so much for joining today. Okay. It's always great talking to you, Stephen. Thank you. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we are going to continue talking about state politics. We're going to talk with State Senator Stephanie Chang about a new bill she sponsored to help lower the prison population here in Michigan. also want to continue to hear from you on the phones and on social. 313-577-1019 is the number. You can go to Twitter and hashtag us. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. WDET provides trusted news, inclusive conversations, and cultural experiences that empower the community. 1019 WDET, Detroit's public radio station. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. Glad you've joined us. I'm Stephen Henderson, your host. Mass incarceration is a problem everywhere in our country, but in Michigan, it's taken a particularly strange and problematic turn. That's because Michigan is now home to one of the oldest prison inmate populations in the United States. This creates a lot of challenges. For Michiganders, for one thing, the cost of housing and taking care of older inmates goes up as their health care needs rise. But what's more, because people age out of crime, there's often little reason to be incarcerating people for such a long time. We have had a reputation for years here in the state of Michigan that suggests that once you go to prison here, it is really hard to get out. The length of sentences, the inflexibility of parole means that people stay in jail, in prison, for an awfully long time. There are a number of lawmakers who acknowledge all of this and who are working to decarcerate much of Michigan's prison population. State Senator Stephanie Chang is one of those people, and recently she sponsored the Second Look Sentencing Act, which allows incarcerated people the chance to petition to reduce their sentence after serving at least 10 years if they're determined not to be a threat to society. To talk about this bill, what it does, the likelihood of it passing, and what it would mean for our prison population if it does pass, we've got Senator Chang here with us. Stephanie, welcome. Welcome back to Detroit Today. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. So let's talk about the Second Look Second uh, Second Look Sentencing Act. Uh, what does it do? So I'm really excited about this, first of all. And I just want to note that there, this is the result of a couple years of a lot of hard work mm-hmm. by, you know, an amazing coalition. Uh, but the Second Look Sentencing Act, basically what it would do is it would create a, a, a tool, a process to 
uh, allow incarcerated individuals who have served uh, over 10 years of their sentence to be able to petition their sentencing judge for a reduction of their sentence, basically a resentencing. And so after they send in this petition, the judge would be able to look at different factors. How old was the person at the time? The appropriateness of the sentence today? The person's history while incarcerated? You know, what is that person's mental or physical health now? What was their mental or physical health at the time of the crime? You know, was that person a victim of human trafficking or domestic abuse? Um, and a number of other factors. And then there would be a hearing. Um, and then the judge would make a determination about whether or not, um, you know, to lower that sentence. Um, and there are several exceptions that we did make. want to make sure that we uh, talk about those real quick, that, you know, anyone convicted of a mass shooting or a serious domestic violence offense or criminal sexual conduct against a child under 13, human trafficking, a number of those types of offenses would be excluded um, from, you know, you know, they're not required to have a hearing. So Mm -hmm. um, there are some exceptions, but overall, we know that there are just so many people in prison, like you mentioned, that are, that are really old, uh, not a danger anymore, and really just, uh, you know, deserve to have this second look. Yeah. Um, Talk about what kind of effect this would have on the prison population here, uh, how how many people really would would benefit from this? How many prisoners uh, would get this kind of hearing and maybe get their sentences reduced? Yeah, so it kind of just just depends, right? So we have talked to the Department of Corrections to try to figure this out. Um, it really obviously depends on how many people decide to petition, um, and then there's no way really of being able to know how how those hearings would go because it really uh, the judge you know is the one who would make that determination. Um, but I think that it is a significant number of people. We know that there are a lot of folks who have just been in prison for a long time. You know, 30% of Michigan's incarcerated individuals have already served 10 years of their sentence, and uh, nearly one in five have already served 15 years. Um, and we've got a lot of elderly folks, folks who just really, you know, have gone through so much programming in prison to be able to better themselves. Many people who, you know, simply just want to be reunited with their family. Um, you know, each of these individuals we've got to remember is a human being. They're a sibling, a parent, a friend to people in our community who, uh, you know, deserve a, deserve, deserve this second look and, um, I, I think that this is smart policy. It's something that makes a lot of sense, both from a, a human aspect of, you know, uh, forgiveness and giving people second chances, but also um, because we do spend a lot of money in our prison system. And uh, we also, I think, need to think about the impact on our communities. If we're reuniting family members. That's a good thing. Yeah. Uh, I talked in the open just a little about the cost of having an aging prison population uh, give us a, I mean we already spend more on incarceration in the state of Michigan than we do on schools uh, a fact that I, I, I always want to point yeah. out when we're talking about this because I think it's quite absurd uh, but but this is a big driver of, of the cost the fact that uh, when people get older uh, they, they need more care and that care is is not cheap. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the cost of incarcerating individuals is already expensive, but you're absolutely right. If someone's older or someone develops a health condition or maybe they already had a health condition going in and then it gets worse. I mean, all of these things definitely cost money, um, you know, and it also is a cost in terms of, you know, uh, the human element as well. So there's so many reasons why this is smart policy and 
really, really committed to, to getting it done. And I think, you know, it's very important, too, that we think about, you know, uh, you know I, I met a number of women at Huron Valley who are really excited about this legislation, legislation and they're amazing human beings who have actually done a lot in, in prison to, to better themselves. They have, you know, mentored other individuals. They uh, have been extremely, you know, productive members of their community um, and, you know, deserve this, this chance, this second look. And uh, I'm really, really hopeful that people will understand that this is good policy. It's smart policy in terms of our fiscal yeah. you know, analysis, but it's also good for our communities. Yeah. Uh, we're talking with State Senator Stephanie Chang. She's a Democrat who represents Michigan's third state Senate district, which includes parts of Detroit and some of the northern uh, suburbs here. Uh, she recently sponsored the Second Look Sentencing Act, which would give some prisoners uh, the opportunity to have a hearing to reduce their sentences after they've served 10 years in prison. Uh, we have a population here, a prison population. Uh, that is among the oldest in the United States. And, of course, uh, that means there are all kinds of challenges we face that uh, other states don't. Uh, we would love to hear from you during this conversation as well. What do you make of Michigan's prison population? Do you think lawmakers should be trying to limit the number of people who are incarcerated and to help decarcerate our state. Uh, so how would you like to see them do that? Dealing with sentencing, of course, is part of the equation to uh, decarcerating uh, Michigan. Uh, do you think we should uh, do we should do you think we should be shortening sentences for people who are already in prison and have already been uh, sentenced to be there? Uh, do you, what, are, what other kind of things do you think we should be thinking about? Uh, also, give us a call if you think we should not be shortening people's prison sentences. If you think uh, maybe we should have tougher sentences here in, in Michigan, would love to hear your call and explain why you think that. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to... Uh, the go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can work you into the conversation. Chatterbots on Twitter, uh, Twitter says, uh, this is an opportunity to see democratic policy in action. When Dems had control of both houses in Washington, it didn't have the numbers to enact change. Michigan can set an example for the nation of effective liberal policy if we play our cards right. Interesting uh, observation there about uh, some of the things that are going on. Geraldine on Twitter says, thanks for covering these topics today. Special gratitude to Senator Stephanie Chang for her work on judicial reform and a shout out uh, for her support of Michigan driver's licenses for undocumented immigrants. Uh, another issue that uh, Senator Chang is working on. Uh, let's go to the phones here. Uh, start with Jim in Waterford. Jim, welcome to the show. Hello. Hi. Go yes. ahead, Jim. Uh, I'm 100% in favor of what you're doing, but as an older man, I'm, I'm curious. If, what do you have in place for these people once you've let them out and they have their freedom, but they also have age discrimination? Now they've got a, a prison discrimination. Uh, what are they going to do with themselves, and what do you have to help them fit back into society? Great question, Jim. Uh, Senator Chang, we talk all the time about returning citizens and making sure they have 
not just the support they need, but but real opportunity for the the, the rebuilding of their lives. That gets more complicated if somebody is uh, has been in prison for a, a long period of time and maybe is uh, maybe is older. Uh, mm-hmm. How do we how do we look at those things and how do we kind of marry the uh, efforts on those, that end with these kind of efforts that you're doing to get people uh, the opportunity to get out? Yeah, it's a really great question, and you know, it's actually uh, one of the things that I've been really happy to see is that. When we talk about reentry and we talk about folks coming back home, um, there is actually a lot of bipartisan support, or at least there has been, you know, in years past uh, during my time in the legislature to support more more initiatives, more changes in the law, funding, et cetera, um, to help get folks back on their feet uh, once they're incarcerated. I think it's a really good point that if someone's an older individual, that their challenges are going to be different. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think you know, maybe it's less about finding employment and more so the emphasis on what kind of housing will be available to them uh, uh, and other types of resources that we need to make available. Um, so those are all really good points. Um, I know a number of my colleagues are all, you know, I've had several conversations about the importance of addressing reentry and really looking at what is it that we're doing well and what are things that we can do better and also are we funding it at an appropriate level. So all of those things are really, really important and I know there's a lot of, a lot of interest. So I mm-hmm. uh, appreciate Jim for raising this really yeah. great point. Yeah. Uh, we should take the opportunity also to, to talk a little about some of the other kinds of criminal justice reform that you and and other members of the legislature are actually working on. Uh, we've been on a, what I'll call a slow, but steady march, I feel like, in Michigan recently, where we really are rethinking uh, the criminal justice system, and there have been some real strides forward. There's still a lot of work to do, but but give us a sense of some of the other things that uh, that are coming down the pike. Yeah, you know, there's a lot that has been done, and many more things that we can do. Uh, so, second look is obviously one of those things. Um, one of the things that I was really excited to see uh, get done in the last legislature that some of my colleagues, including Sylvia Santana and others. Uh, really led on was, you know, the pretrial and jail uh, incarceration task force. Uh, we made a lot of really good changes from as a result of that. Uh, one one big thing that we need to get done this year that I'm excited that we'll get introduced hopefully very soon is the juvenile justice task force recommendations. Um, we've got we've got a lot that we can do to improve how we work with young people who are in, uh, you know, the system. Um, to make sure that they are getting the opportunities that they need. Young people are young people, and they need to be treated differently from adults. And I think that there are a lot of things that we can do on that front. So that's really exciting. Of course, second look is a, is a major topic. And, um, you know, there's also some remaining issues that I'm hoping we can get addressed from the pretrial task force uh, related related to um, <clears throat> cash bail. So lots of good things, lots of good things that we can address. Um, and I think there's, you know, a lot of interest and a lot of bipartisan work that can get done here. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's go, uh, next to Paul in Lincoln Park. Paul, welcome to the program. Hello. How are you today? Good. How are you? Good. Hello, Senator Chang. Good morning. Hi. Uh, quick question for you, uh, Senator Chang. Uh, as part of this, um, a second look. Does 
if a person gets the second look, do they go into a the parole, or is it just immediately? Uh, are they just immediately out? Oh yeah, great question. So yeah, so no, um, they. So what would happen is you know. They would send in this petition, explain all these different facts. The judge would look at the facts, um, hold a hearing, make a determination about a reduction in their sentence. Um, but in terms of when that person would actually be released, they would still, you know, have to go through the parole board process. So it doesn't change anything about the parole board process. What it does do is is potentially uh, change the sentence itself. So hopefully that clarifies a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Paul, thanks for the call and the question. Let's go to Pete in Redford. Pete, what's on your mind? Yeah, hi. Thanks a lot. Uh, and thank you, Senator Chang. Um, I'd like to point out I'm all for this 100%. I think that once uh, you get down the road and the uh, the emotions uh, settle a little bit, dust settles, uh, people have a better concept of time, um, it's a good thing overall. But I'd also like to point out that the savings that could be realized through this uh, would greatly benefit the rest of the prison population because there are programs that work within MDOC, but they're severely underfunded. Mm-hmm. And if we could plow these savings back into that, it would be an exponentially better deal for everybody all the way around. Safer society, um, more successful reentry all the way around. And thank you once again, Senator Chang. Yeah, uh, uh, Pete, uh, really appreciate that perspective. Uh, uh, Stephanie, we've talked about uh, the financial side of this, but the idea of reinvesting it, I guess, in in better care for uh, for current prisoners makes a lot of sense because, again, we have such a large prison population, the needs there are still quite quite large. Absolutely. Um, lots of needs, lots of things we can do. Uh, you know, one of the things that I know the Department of Corrections has been trying to do more of is, you know, really ensure that we're uh, providing good services and, and programs to folks inside so that they can, you know, better themselves. But but all of that takes money, right? So if we're able to increase the dollars that we spend on those programs that help people to be able to reenter society in a more, you know, prepared, productive way, then that's better. That's good for everyone. So it's a really great point. It's a really great idea. If we can reinvest those savings, um, I think it will help a lot of people. Yeah. So uh, before I have to let you go, I want to talk uh, about the prospect for this bill passing and and becoming law here in in the state. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things that I think has been amazing is during my entire time in the legislature, you know, for the past eight years in the minority serving as a Democrat or Republican legislature, we've done so many good criminal justice reform efforts that have been bipartisan. Um, and so I'm, I'm hoping that this will be no different, that this will be something that we can get broad support on. Um, so the bills have just recently been introduced this week. We um, you know, are going to take our time to talk to colleagues, talk to different stakeholders, um, and build the support that we need to get it done. And I'm uh, feeling optimistic. Okay. State Senator Stephanie Chang, uh, always great to have you here on Detroit Today and really great to have you come by to talk about uh, the Second Look Act. Thanks uh, so much for joining us. Thank you. Have a good day.
We're going to take another quick break, and we're going to continue to talk about policy, but turn to the city of Detroit, where a new ordinance to ban guns in certain parts of the city has been proposed, but has also met with some real opposition. City Council Member Mary Waters, one of the at-large members of our governing body here in the city of Detroit, is going to join us next. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Today on 1019 WDET, I'm Stephen Henderson, and thanks for joining. We all know the kinds of problems that we have in the city of Detroit with gun violence. They aren't new. They are intensifying. And if you watch the news almost any week here in the city, you see the evidence of it all the time. It comes up time and time again. But recently, after six shootings that happened on the same weekend here in the city of Detroit, people started to pay maybe a little more attention. And we've got some new ideas on the table about how to deal with it. Some city council members, for instance, are now pushing to institute gun-free zones in places like Greektown, along the riverfront, at Hart Plaza and at Spirit Plaza, places where we gather together as Detroiters, places that mean a lot, not just to people who live here in the city, but also to people who visit the city. And it's especially important to keep those places safe for the number of young people who go to those places. If you spend any time in those places on the weekends, you know uh, the city's youth really see those as uh, magnets almost for their attention, places that they go for entertainment. So to talk about this proposed ordinance and what she thinks it would accomplish, we have Detroit City Council member Mary Waters here. She has been spearheading this effort to pass this gun-free zone ordinance. Uh, Mary, welcome to Detroit Today. Well, thank you, and good morning. Yes. Good morning to you and your listeners. Yes, it's been a long time. It's nice to have you here. It's, it's been a minute, yes. <laughs> uh, so let's talk about this. Why do you think we need gun-free zones in the city, and how does that work? I think a lot of people don't really understand what that means, so uh, explain it to them. All right, okay, so, so, so thank you. But you sort of summed it up yourself. It's about safety. It's about protecting citizens those who live here and those who are visiting. It's about saving lives. That's what this is all about. Anytime that you have a significant number of people who gather in public places, and if they're all armed, something is likely to happen. Not necessarily, but it's a very strong possibility because why people tend to just get upset when they're in crowds. They become irritated. And when you are there and you are armed and you start pulling your gun out because, you know, people don't settle disputes anymore now with conversation or anything. The first thing that they want to do is pull out a gun. That's, that's how they resolve things. So then you have children who are trying to enjoy the downtown area, the riverfront and Greektown and Hart Plaza. You have senior citizens who are trying to enjoy it. A number of people who just want a safe place that they can enjoy themselves. 
But yet we have a certain group of people who want to come down and spoil all of that. So we're just saying, we're asking you leave your guns at home when you come down. If we have a crowd that say over a certain amount, and, and we'll be able to determine that both along with the, the police department and, and along with council members and the mayor's office, we will work together to decide which specific areas are, are to be designated as gun-free zones. I think we have a pretty good idea hmm. what, what those are, and we've cited some of those uh, in the resolution uh, that we offered. But we have to agree on it as, as a city. And so we targeted various geographic areas so that we can help save lives. And that's what this is all about. And for people to say otherwise, we're not asking to take your guns. We're not even infringing on your Second Amendment rights. We are saying help us to keep people safe when they are in crowded areas. Mm-hmm. So, so uh, what are you saying to people who say, uh, okay, well, let's create a, a gun-free zone. And people who follow the law, who do what they're supposed to do, won't bring guns, but we know that a lot of the people who have guns and and who use them uh, in in inappropriate ways in the city, they don't follow the law anyway. So it won't have any effect on them or their behavior. How do you answer that? We'll have some police officers there to to make sure. And if they are there with illegal guns, they're going to be caught. They're going to be stopped. They're going to be prosecuted accordingly. So what would the penalty be for having a gun what? in these gun free Well, what's zones? the penalty now? And especially if you have an illegal gun. If you gun. have an illegal weapon, right. If, if you have an illegal well, so, so so that's pretty set. Um, we have to work out all of the details. I know we have CPL holders who says we are, we're responsible gun owners. I mean, that's what they say. But the most reasonable person... If you're carrying a gun, sometimes when you get heated, you will use it. And I'm going to give you an example. I was talking with a, with someone just a, a couple of days ago. Mm-hmm. They are licensed CPL carrier, trained, in fact, by the police department. Someone started to walk up on them. They were The person was pretty excited, wanted to tell them something. He says, and he says, Mary, I don't even carry my gun anymore. He says, because you know why? I almost shot somebody. And it was real innocent. The guy was just trying to say, well, I think I know your brother or, or whatever, something like that, mm-hmm. you know. And he says, and, and, and it really scared me because I almost, I could have taken a life just being suspicious. And sometimes, you know, people... Uh, 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 in crowds, somebody step on their toes. Some, they think somebody's cutting a line. All of those kinds of things. I am calling on people. Help us. Help us, Detroiters. Help us, visitors, to save lives. That's what this is all about. Nothing else. Nothing about infringing on your Second Amendment <laughs> rights. And there are some who are spreading those rumors. They are not true. Do not listen to them. I mean, there's a lot of people who are saying, for instance, that this is one step, right? And that, you know, there, there will be other things that come behind it. I mean, people who are Second Amendment enthusiasts always get very nervous when the government starts to say, well, uh, we're going we're gonna to regulate uh, 
uh, that right that you have. To okay, have that well, well, Stephen, let me, let me remind them. You know, the same people, the NRA types and those folks, they go into Ford Field. They go into Little Caesars Arena. Can't have a gun there. You cannot have guns there. And, and in fact, those facilities are actually owned by authorities. So I'm not sure how private they actually are. We're doing some research on it because we want to make sure that we provide accurate information for people. But you do it anyway, and you leave your guns at home because that's where you want to be. We're saying the same thing. If you want to come down on the riverfront and in various areas and it's crowded, mm-hmm. don't bring your guns. We're not we don't want to take your guns. That's not what this is about. I cannot be clear. You I mean, respect us. You see, Stephen, black people are dying. Yes. Black people are doing the killing. And black leadership is not standing up enough to try and fix it. This is what's happening. And so I'm out here, and, 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 and it's a very strong stance because, you know, they're, they're the NRA folks, the types who are trying to bully me. They're literally trying to bully me. That's I'm not aggressive. going to be bullied. Yeah. I'm a breast cancer survivor. I fought that. I'm going to fight back with them because calling me a racist because I want to do something to save my people, to stop the killing, I'm begging these young people, these young black people, put your guns away. What happened with the old fist fight? Yeah, right. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Just just I mean, fight they, it out. Don't take a life. So 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 talk a little though about the the, the broader problem here. And there are some people who say uh, that that's just as important as as dealing with guns and and we don't have to determine that or not. I mean, I, I would disagree. I think the gun problem is 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 priority, but uh, we do have other problems. We do have, uh, you know, a, a culture in this city that that does not value, I think, uh, black life the way mm-hmm. it should. It doesn't mm-hmm. value young lives mm-hmm. the way it should. And that drives the violence and the death, uh, you know, in really important ways as well. Oh, oh and, and it breaks my heart. It does. What happened? To people just saying that a life is important, valuing life. Family structures are broken. They are broken. And we know that, you know, that there's systemic racism, all of those things that have happened to put people, I I don't know why, and people are so angry. We've got mental illness that we have to address. All of these are underlying causes. And when you don't value your life, you're not likely, likely to value right, anybody else's, else's life. Absolutely. And these are the kinds of things. And, of course, those just are citing a few things. But I think if parents do not step up and say to your children, you're not going to leave here. You're not going to be violent. When I allow you to step outside, when I allow you to go to the riverfront, when I allow you to go to Hart Plaza, you're not going to get out there and commit all of this violence. Check their rooms out. See what's going on with them. Talk with your children. We want to save their life, too, and we don't want them to take another life. Yeah.
Yeah. I'm talking with City Council member Mary Waters. She's an at-large member of the City Council here in Detroit. Uh, She has proposed an ordinance that would establish gun-free zones in certain areas where people gather in and around downtown. Uh, If you want to... Join the conversation. Give us a call. Let us know what you think of the idea of gun-free zones. Do you like that idea? Do you think it would slow some of the really awful gun violence that uh, we're living with right now uh, in Detroit? Or do you think it goes too far and doesn't respect people's Second Amendment rights? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. Uh, Mary, what's the next step? Uh, Stephen, you know, I've got to go back to this Second Amendment, right, Uh, once again, um, because right now, I mean, if they want to use that and say that what I'm proposing uh, with this resolution and asking the state legislature to uh, grant us the authority to do so, right? Uh, Now, if they are saying that this infringes on their Second Amendment rights, then I need them to go over there and have a conversation at Ford Field, uh, Little Caesars I, I, I Arena, Comerica Park. Examples, right? There yes. are places, and they are there are schools, public. there are churches, yeah. there are right. airports. There are a lot of places. Where you cannot have a gun. You cannot have a gun. So what we're saying is that if we have a crowd over a certain number of people, we want it to be gun free. So that we can protect people, we can protect our babies, we can protect, you know, most of the people say, well, you know, I'm a responsible gun owner, I have a CPL. Well, what type of training did you receive? You are trained to shoot at what? Black silhouettes. You are not trained. It is so extremely different in the world. You get anxious uh, when you're out, you're angry, you see, and then there you are killing up innocent bystanders. I don't care what people say. You are not trained to do that when you're in a crowd of people. You just aren't. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about what the next steps are for uh, this this uh, ordinance. As you point out, it would need approval from the state. So how do you well, get that? Well, well, listen, I, I am pretty excited. I recently um, learned that... Um, uh, Senator Jeff Irwin out of um, Ann, Arbor Ann Arbor has introduced a bill, Senate Bill 208, um, which will help us to get there. The legislature uh, should pass it. And that would be basically uh, repealing uh, Public Act 319 of 1990 um, so that cities, municipalities can govern themselves as it relates to gun uh, free zones, because you see, in 1990, that that prevented it. Right, it prevented the people from being able to do cities to, from being able to, to, to do, do that. Yeah. Yes, and so I am so excited. Um, the bill uh, was co-sponsored by um, um, Senator Stephanie Chang, also by Senator Moss. Um, there are a number of uh, people who co-sponsored this particular bill. So this will certainly help municipalities. Uh, give them that authority that they need, an opportunity to opt in so that they can save lives. And so I'm pretty excited about that. And we are uh, sending a resolution to them saying, listen, we support this. Uh, We are eager uh, that the state legislature uh, pass this. And that's going to be fantastic and very, very helpful for us. Okay.
All right, uh, Mary Waters, at-large member of the Detroit City Council. Uh, great to see you, and thanks for coming in to talk about uh, this idea of gun-free zones. All right, and thank you so much. Yeah. Okay, that is going to do it for us today here on Detroit Today. We'll be back tomorrow with great programming. Remember, if you like the show, if you get a lot out of it, share it with your friends and your family, your neighbors. Uh, We love every member of this community, and we want everyone to take part. This is 101.9 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.